This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, as India's Prime Minister visits PNG for the first time, we find out what the Pacific stands to gain. Meanwhile, as votes are counted in Timor Leste, we hear, hear about the key issues that brought people to the polls. This so-called uh, maritime boundary with Australia, we need to change uh, something better for Timor Leste. And a new edition of a book on Samoa's Tatao delves into the sometimes controversial history of one of its lead artists. Someone who is willing to innovate and experiment with the art form. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan, so glad to have your company. First, though, India's prime minister and leaders from more than a dozen Pacific Island nations are in Papua New Guinea for a high-level summit. It's part of India's push to strengthen its ties in the Pacific and to counter growing Chinese influence. And although the U.S. President Joe Biden pulled out last week, the U.S. is still expected to take the chance to shore up its own defense ties with Papua New Guinea. PNG correspondent Tim Swanston with this report. The absence of U.S. President Joe Biden hasn't stopped the ceremonial welcomes for other world leaders, including India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Leaders and officials from India and 14 Pacific Island countries, as well as Australia and New Zealand, are meeting in Port Moresby for the third Forum for India-Pacific Islands Cooperation. Paul Barker, who's the director of the PNG think tank, the Institute of National Affairs, says it's a signal that China isn't the only nation with an interest in building its influence in the region. India as a, an alternative international um, power source, economic source, but also a leader in the, in the movement of non-aligned nations over many, many years. It wants to sort of be able to uh, affiliate with, with many of the voices across the Pacific. With climate change and food and energy security on the summit agenda, the US Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who's stepped in for President Biden, is also expected to sign two key agreements with Papua New Guinea. The first is aimed at plugging the gaps in PNG's capability at sea and would see the US Coast Guard assist in securing the country's waters. The second is likely to be more contentious a defence cooperation agreement that could lay the foundation for an expanded US military presence and capability here in PNG. Here's PNG Defence Force Chief Mark Goyner. The Redisie uh, is the, the key uh, to doing more with the US. Uh, it's going to change the, the scope of our engagement, I must say. Uh, given the US, the bigger they are and, uh, you know, and... They don't want to come in and, uh, and do little things. They want to come in and do big things where it can help. PNG will still need to approve the movement of any US military assets into the country, but the agreement is a clear sign that America is eyeing a much bigger defence presence in PNG and that Port Moresby, at least for now, appears willing to play along. Paul Barker again. With a, a more economically powerful but also a more... Um forceful stance on foreign policy by China, then certainly the, the US has sort of upped their game and, and attention and, uh, and Australia has become sort of more uh, 
anxious. The full text of the defence cooperation agreement isn't public, but it's a big step in reinvigorating the US-PNG relationship, especially after China signed a security pact with the neighbouring Solomon Islands just last year. But these agreements are certainly a balancing act for Pacific countries, and PNG Foreign Affairs Secretary Elias Wahengu has been at pains to say that this doesn't tie the nation down. We are within the ambit of the foreign policy perspective of Papua New Guinea, friends to all, enemies to none. This agreement does not in any way preclude PNG from engaging with another nation in a future defence cooperation agreement. For now, PNG is taking its turn on the global stage. That was Papua New Guinea's correspondent, Tim Swanston, there. Pacific Beat. And as we just heard, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi has arrived in Papua New Guinea and was welcomed at the airport by his counterpart James Marape last night. It's the first time India's Prime Minister has made an official visit to the country and the third time a forum for India-Pacific Islands cooperation will be held with other Pacific leaders. To find out more about what this historic visit means for India-Pacific relations, we're joined by Tista Prakash from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Good morning, Atista. Hi, Priyanka. Hi. So um, I wanted to start with the way, I guess, the meeting started between Modi and uh, Marape. Mm-hmm. Um, he was welcomed to PNG in, in a bit of an unusual way, with Marape actually bending down as um, Modi came out of the plane, out off his flight, bending down to touch his, his feet. Can you explain why Marape might have chosen to do that? Sure, that's a really interesting um, point as well because it highlights sort of the cultural connections between sort of Pacific and India in that there's a lot of mutual respect and essentially touching feet in the Indian culture um, of elders is to is done to seek blessings. And this, of course, you know, has higher strategic meaning as well that, you know, PNG is looking towards India now to be strong sort of strategic and economic um, partners. But I think more more of it is to do with um, to show mutual respect and the fact that, you know, Pacific and India share a lot of cultural um, similarities and how, you know, elders are treated in the community and how there's sort of a hierarchy of, of players, really. Mm. Um, and, and that, that sort of touching feet just highlighted that, that cultural connection. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, is it, is it common to have, um, the touching of feet happen between, um, different, different leaders towards the, um, the Indian prime minister? Look, it's, 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 I don't think it's ever happened before, wow. if I'm being completely frank. Um, but I think it's also to do with the Pacific touch, right? They do mm. things a little bit differently. Things are a lot less formal, I suppose. Um, and a lot more focus is given on sort of, you know, um, respect to society, especially if you're an elder, right? Mm. So, um, it's, it just, it highlights a newer form of diplomacy, um, that, you know, fits within the vision of both India and sort of the Pacific as well. So it's new, but, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Yes. Yes, very interesting. And and to me, it, I guess, highlights someone in Marape's team must have done their research and, and I guess, uh, looked into what's culturally ex- expected in, in India and, and um, decided to add that to the welcome ceremony, which which is interesting in itself. Um, but of this course. is this is part of a big, I guess, um, uh, a visit. And, and as we've been saying, the first time an Indian PM has vid- visited Papua New Guinea. Why do you think this is happening now? 
think um, this is coming at the heels of sort of a 10-year-long strategic push by India. Um, as you know that, you know, India was, pri- before Prime Minister Modi was um, in power, India was relatively sort of absent from the Pacific region and for, um, you know, uh, understandable reasons because it, it falls outside the periphery of India's sort of strategic, strategic um, ambit. Um, but since 2014, India has really, you know, uh, trying to engage with the Pacific with an increased sort of aid budget and and in uh, Narendra Modi's visit to Fiji in 2014, the establishment of FIPIC um, in 2014 with the first summit being held in Suva, the second one in Jaipur, and now the third one in Port Moresby. There's there's a strategic push for India now to engage with the Pacific to sort of, you know, there are two main reasons. The first one being that it has to balance against a rising China. Mm. And as it sees a rising China even farther away from its sort of closed shores, it sees that a need for a, a multipolar Indo-Pacific. And to do that, it has to sort of be present within the entire region. And the second reason is more sort of normative, that it is looking to have a global power status. And that means being present in distant shores and 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 really to sort of have a, a, a more sort of global presence, as it were. So there's these two sort of strategic and economic reasons, but also a more normative sort of, you know, global power status and how it's seen. Mm, very interesting. I mean, let's let's dig into that first one that you mentioned there, mm. the rise of China. Um, where does India stand in its allegiances? We often talk about China against the West, I guess, the Australia, mm-hmm. US, UK counterpart and, and you know, New Zealand um, partnerships against China. Where does India really stand in, in that, um, uh, you know, that bilateral relations there? Look, um, China-India relations are at an all-time low. Mm. Uh, for India, the Chinese threat is a very sort of uh, uh, is present and and dangerous because of the border clashes that have started in 2020, but uh, at the Galwan Valley. So for for India, balancing against China is 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 one of its sort of key national security strategies. Um, there is also, you know, the growing closeness of India with the West, right? Whether that be the U.S. Um, or the Quad. Um, there's there's a is a natural sort of um, affinity of balancing powers, right? And the West is looking to do that, and India is also looking to do that. So they become natural allies in this journey. Um, but again, the the question really is, you know, given sort of Modi's visit to to Port Moresby on his own, whether he wants to be seen as India as a lone sort of global power, um, or whether it wants to be seen as the Western sort of, um, you know, uh, concert of powers in that sense. So really, it's, it's interesting to see how India would like to be perceived. Yes, yeah, it is very interesting. And you mentioned that it, it brings me to the fact that the US uh, President Joe Biden sort of pulled out last minute um, to this meeting. I mean, he was supposed to be there with Modi um, meeting Pacific leaders. Um, considering what you just said about India wanting to see as, you know, perhaps as its lone, you know, geo global power, how does the, um, the, the, the inability for Joe Biden to be here play into that? Uh, I think sort of Joe Biden's absence is is understood both by sort of Marape and Modi really because you know there's you, you 
the 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 primacy of domestic politics kind of trumps everything else right mm-hmm. and and especially when it comes to something like debt ceilings because that ensures sort of america's ability um to to sort of remain at the economic um sort of you know high table mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, to to ensure that there has to be some sort of um you know compromises made and i think that's 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 understandable uh, by the leadership here and i think it may also just be you know a, a benefit for Modi's visit because now he can engage um, with Marape and sort of the officials within um, PNG on a more sort of bilateral level. And there's a lot more breathing room, I guess, as well between, you know, if there were two big leaders visiting at the same time, I suppose PNG will be um, under stress and duress to sort mm-hmm. of cater to both. Um, but now that there's just one, I think it gives them a lot more leeway to really discuss sort of the economic relations that India is trying to establish with PNG, as well as the more broader sort of strategic aims of both sides. Mm. If you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat, we're joined by Tista Prakash from the in- Australia Strategic Policy. Institute, and we're talking about uh, Indian Prime Minister Modi's visit to Papua New Guinea. He touched down just last night, I believe, was met with Marape, and we expect him to meet with other Pacific leaders today. Now, um, Atista, you mentioned the other aspect uh, about um, India wanting to seem, I guess, become a global power and um, have its own relationship with the Pacific. What do you think that India will want out of this visit? Um, I think the key things to look out for is how India is trying to economically engage with the PNG. Um, previously, India had had its foothold in Fiji, given its cultural connections. Um, and Indira Gandhi, the last Indian prime minister to visit um, the Pacific Islands in 1981, was also in Fiji. Um, but I think now more than ever, India is now trying to secure its energy needs. And as you know, the PNG is a gas-rich country. Um, they're trying to sort of invest also in the mineral sectors as India looks to push um, on its sort of EV vehicle design plan with the whole Make in India campaign that um, Prime Minister Modi is spearheading. Um, so there's sort of, you know, economic interests that India is trying to secure with the PNG. And um, meanwhile, for the PNG, it's also a win-win because it is trying to engage with more players from sort of, you know, the uh, to balancing sort of China, but also to, to really, you know, engage, um, diversify its own engagement that has primarily been sort of, you know, US um, oriented. So I think it's um, both sides are looking for a win. Mm. I mean, what, what can India offer the Pacific? I mean, is there something unique, like a unique playing card that India can can sort of pull out to the region that that no one else can? Sure, I think India's development corporation that it's strengthening through FIPIC, uh, it's really important in how India is sort of trying to. Um, uh, fulfills the needs of the Pacific countries, um, whether that be under technical assistance or renewable energies. Um, there is a very unique role that India is playing as a development partner. Um, of course, you know, the question of, of scale is, is very important here. India is not currently able to match the dollar for dollar kind of amount that China or the US or even Australia puts into the region. But I think India's focus on institution strengthening, right, or mm-hmm. through technical assistance, um, and India's leading position as a renewable power, given its role in the International Solar Alliance um, as such, 
really sort of, you know, there's a strategic congruence here in trying to um, engage with the Pacific and the win, the win-win on both sides that I was talking about, that India plays a unique development corporation partner that, you know, focuses on strengthening the, the, the sort of the domestic needs of the Pacific countries, including climate change. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's, that's where it sets itself apart from the other sort of, you know, strategic players in their arena. Yeah, because it's interesting, Tista, that you describe this as a win-win because often, particularly now, as we're seeing, you know, so many players engage with the Pacific, often these engagements can come with strings attached. You know, we see with China um, being criticized for, you know, pushing its one China policy as it creates these development partnerships with the Pacific. Um, and we just heard some criticism around United States, you know, trying to secure this uh, security deal with Papua New Guinea, some controversy about what that might mean for Papua New Guinea's um, sovereignty and, and ability to, to you know, um, dictate its own security future. Is there a risk that there could be strings attached with India's foreign engagement with the Pacific? Uh, it's not abundantly clear as of now. Given that India comes with its own sort of post-colonial identity, there is a lot more mutual respect, right, which we saw with Marape touching uh, mm. Modi's feet, um, that there aren't strings attached as, you know, uh, as, you know, openly oblique as, you know, China would say a one China or, you know, a UN vote or something. Mm. Um, the, 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 what I said about a mutual win here, there is a lot more sort of strategic congruence that I go back to, right? That there isn't really an outright sort of strategic objective that India is going in with and spearheading that. Um, so there is a lot more sort of room to play around to see how both sides can help each other. Um, and it's been trying to do that in the last 10 years, right? So there's there's a lot more, I think, ease at which um, India is going. And of course, I understand that no aid or no sort of, you know, interaction in the global arena is all, is under altruism, right? Mm. Everyone has a strategic objective to, um, to achieve. But I think for India because of its sort of post-colonial past, it really does respect the, you know, the, 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 the sovereignty of the Pacific Islands. And most importantly, it respects PIF, the Pacific Islands Forum. And FIPIC um, interacts with the, with the Pacific through an institutional perspective. It doesn't do, bi- it doesn't, you know, sort of engage with countries on a bilateral level, sort of breaking them apart. It sort of sees them as a part of, you know, two families interacting, which is very much part of the Pacific culture. Mm. Um, so I think I think there is, you know, the, 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 of course there are strategic objectives here, um, but the ways and the means with you know how you achieve them um, is a lot more fluid here. Yeah, very interesting. And just uh, finally, before um, we, you go, Tista, I wanted to ask you, what do you have any insight about what this meeting might mean for people in India? How they're reacting to see their leader visit PNG for for the first time? How are they talking about it? It's interesting because, um, uh, you know, the Pacific doesn't really sit very, very easily within the Indian imagination, um, uh, partially because it's so far away. Mm. Um, but I think, um, uh, you know, as Modi expands India's sort of, you know, footprint across the world um, and a lot of his foreign, you know, foreign policy um, is to really put India on the map really um this 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 does bring bring a lot of sort of interest to, to india about this you know the pacific part of the world um of course you know fiji has always uh, you know been the main sort of idea of when you think about the pacific for india because of the cultural connections and the colonial ties um but but i think this is this is a really new and interesting chapter of of how you know indians are seeing themselves what i said about the global power 
Um, and the fact that they see their prime minister visiting these countries that have never been visited by an Indian um, leader before. So I think it's sort of, you know, as sort of Modi heads into the election year uh, 2024, it's also sort of, you know, giving him a leg up on on how sort of he's put India on the map, really. Mm. Um, so, so I think I think there is a, a matter of national pride there as well. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Atisa, thank you for much, so much for your time this morning. Oh, thank you, Pranka. That was Atista Prakash, an analyst from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And as we were discussing, we expect that meeting between India's Modi, uh, Prime Minister Modi and Pacific leaders to happen later today. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Monday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. In Fiji, 24 MPs from the largest political party in the country have been barred from parliament. They belong to the former ruling party, Fiji First, which has uh, has had its registration suspended along with four other parties for failing to provide an audited financial report to the Electoral Commission. Joining us now to look at the political situation now in Fiji is jo- Dr. John Frankel, a professor of comparative politics at the University of Victoria in New Zealand. Good Good morning to you, Dr. Frankel. Good morning. Um, so you've been following Fiji politics for quite some time now. Uh, do you believe these suspensions are justified or, or does it strike to you as something of a government payback? Well, I mean, it's a sign of the degree to which the former ruling party, Fiji First, has been hoisted on its own petard <laughs> because it was Fiji First that uh, passed all these draconian party regulations in the three acts of continual amendments of them that, that, that introduce all these fines and strict rules about uh, signatures required across, across the country, about audited accounts, about statements, about sources of income. And I think um, uh, it's hardly surprising that e- even without direct intervention, it's hardly surprising that the a supervisor of elections uses these against the opposition parties and against three small parties that gain no seats in parliament, but is more reluctant to use these laws against the ruling parties, the parties in coalition in government. Um, that's uh, one reason why I think these laws are not necessarily that good an idea. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be um, uh, more likely that, that uh, uh, civil servants find it very difficult to act in a neutral way. Even when they're not overtly partisan, uh, the uh, incentives are all to use these laws to punish the opposition, but not to punish the governing parties. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it's interesting that you say, um, you know, hoisted by their own petard. It is the Fiji First um, Party, when they were in rule, that brought in some of these regulations. Um, but yeah. meanwhile, Ayasai Kayum, the former Attorney General, who is, of course, part of Fiji First, has described this as grossly unfair and biased. Um, you mentioned there that it's the regulations that I guess the supervising, um, oh, the supervisor of elections is following to the T. Can, could we possibly see these reversed? Is there a push for that happening? Uh, the, the regulations reversed? Well, yes, she has talked about reviews of the Electoral Act, but this is the Political Parties Act. There are three uh, major acts that govern the electoral registration, and all of them really need reviewing. Uh, let's remember this is the acting supervisor of elections, mm. um, uh, Anna Matayewa, and she's replaced uh, Mohamed Sanim, who was the substantive supervisor of elections and who was a close ally of the Fiji First Government. So over the 2014 to 2018 and 2018 to 22 parliaments, 
It was Sanim who used these regulations almost entirely against the opposition parties, um, not against the ruling Fiji First Party. So uh, uh, when Ayasayev Kem complains, he's complaining really about the, the, his own regulations or regulations that were enforced by his close ally and, uh, uh, and regulations that he had few qualms about when they were used to uh, try in an attempt to try and discredit the opposition. I think also, I mean, it's, it, it, it's also a sign of the fact that Fiji First is changing a lot as a political party. It used to be kind of omnipresent. It would make sure it had all its accounts audited regularly every year. It uh, played everything by the book. But since it's come out of government in December, it no longer has those roots in the state. It no longer has access to the same resources. And there have been a number of kind of missteps and uh, um, uh, incidents which show that it's a little bit uncertain how it's going to operate in future as an opposition party. Yes, I mean, it's very interesting you mentioned that, John, because we are talking about, you know, the largest political party, MPs from that party are being prevented now to participate in politics, pretty much. They, they're no, no longer allowed to be in parliament because of, of this um, dis- decision by the Electoral Commission to suspend their res- registration. So can we really describe Fiji now as a balanced democracy? Well, they've got, Fiji First do have 30 days to submit the audited accounts, and one would suspect that they would be taking steps to try and do that. Uh, you, you ask, can we call Fiji a balanced democracy? Well, we certainly haven't been able to for the last 16 years. It's been run under authoritarian rule and then under a very sort of semi-elective uh, d- a democracy. The new government that came in certainly did commit itself to reversing some of the anti-democratic features of its predecessor. They called for a free media. They've uh, wanted to change a lot of the regulations. They want an end to police harassment. And we have seen some positive signs so far. I don't think we should be cynical and say it's just exactly the same. It's not exactly the same. But I think the, uh, the, the, the new government needs to go further and get rid of some of these draconian regulations because they don't, it doesn't really help Fiji's democracy to have the major opposition party out of parliament at a time when important debates on the budget are going to happen over the, over the days and weeks ahead. It's better to keep the uh, opposition parties in and able to hold the government to account. Mm. So I think Fiji, Fiji's democracy is being, is being tested. It's been tested for <laughs> a hell of a long time. And it's better now than it used to be, but uh, there are further steps that can be taken. Yeah. Uh, actually, I should have said in terms of better steps that, can be take, that, that have been taken, of course, they did abolish the media industry, a law that's been c- constraining media freedom for the last 16 years. Yes, yes, indeed. So, I mean, we potentially could see something here, but I guess we haven't heard of of the coalition um, party saying that they will reverse any of these electoral um, laws. Is that fair, John? Well, the acting supervisor said that they're reviewing the Electoral Act. And I, 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 would, I, I would guess that when they talk about reviewing the Electoral Act, they, they'd be talking about reviewing also the other bits of uh, associated registration, uh, legislation, the political parties and the Registration of Voters Act, because all those are one kind of thing. It's, it's quite a lot of work. There's also elements of, uh, of um, electoral legislation that are embedded in the Constitution, which is almost impossible to change because of the, the requirements of a referendum and a 75% majority of voters. But there is scope for some change without changing the Constitution. 
and I'm sure they'll be discussing that. Yes, we will see. Um, if you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat this Monday morning, we're speaking with Dr. John Frankel from the University of Victoria. We're talking all things uh, Fiji politics with the 24 MPs from the largest political party in the country, that is Fiji First, being barred from a parliament because of failing to provide pretty much an audited report to the Electoral Commission. Um, now, you know, as you said, Fiji First is omnipresent or has been omnipresent in, in Fiji politics. It's still the largest single party in the country. Um, but it, it has, you know, along with this being barred from parliament, it's also lost both Frank, Frank Bainimarama, former prime minister, and Ayaz Syed Kayum, his right-hand man, former attorney general from its ranks in parliament. Is, does it still have that same edge? Is it still a political force in Fiji? Well, it's early days yet. We're only um, a few months out from the December elections. As, as you say, the, the, the key voices in Parliament, uh, the last two parliaments from 2014 to 2018 and then 2018 to 22, were party leader Frank Bainamarama, the former military commander, the leader of the coup in 2006, whose personal vote used to be enormous in 2014 and 2018, carried his party through the elections, but as dwindled very considerably in the last election in December 2022. And then Attorney General Ayas Sayed comes, sometimes called the Minister of Everything, or A to Z, because he had so many portfolios. He was the key speaker in Parliament on every occasion, hounding the opposition. Both of these two gentlemen are out of, are out of Parliament now. Uh, and Inia Sararatu, uh, has taken over as party leader. Yeah. And it's been extraordinary watching them though over the last few months because they patently are clearly finding it difficult to make that adjustment. For example, when government did pass the bill to get rid of the media industry decree, uh, the opposition parties actually opposed it on the grounds that Fiji needed more censorship, which was <laughs> very, very amusing to see the op an opposition party actually campaigning for censorship. It shows a certain degree of disorientation in Fiji First at the moment. But there are some capable people in that party. Uh, it may be the case that that party morphs and adjusts into something uh, more effective as a parliamentary opposition. Yes, yes. It'll be interesting to um, look at that in particular, considering what big um, characters, what, what a big force Ayasaid Kayum and Bainarama have been for Fiji First. Um, and I wanted to turn slightly, um, John, to another issue, which is also very big and, and can have a lot to say for the future of Fiji politics. And that's the Great Council of Chiefs, which will convene at the end, uh, end of this month. Can you explain why that's so significant and how you think that will impact Fiji politics? Well, the, the Great Council of Chiefs was a body that, um, you know, originally put together under British colonial rule, but with some precedence in the Thakambau government just before. And it became uh, an important, played an important constitutional role because when uh, the British governor originally introduced a representation from the for the indigenous Fijians, these were nominees from the Great Council of Chiefs. The Fiji Indians in Fiji actually got the vote before ethnic Fijians. It was not until 1963 that ethnic Fijians got the vote. Before that, the, the council was choosing all of the MPs. And its role really changed a lot, particularly after the 1987 coup, when the um, Great Council of Chiefs initiated the party, the Solosono Vakabulu, when they Okay, the SVT that was led by Bainamarama, who became prime minister. 
in the 1990s. So it was a, a, a powerful organization that was often criticized as well for not behaving in a way that was effective, particularly when they when the chiefs strode into parliament during the spate coup mm. uh, and played a rather equivocal role in relation to the, that, 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 that insurrection. The, the, the great council chiefs used to have a constitutional role in selecting the president and the Senate. The constitution no longer gives it that role. So it's role is undoubtedly going to have to change unless there's a reform of the constitution so it's a, a consultative organization rather than a, rather than one that has extraordinary powers now and some people are very critical of the attempt to restore the great council of chiefs but for myself i see it as a necessary reversal of all the repressive anti-democratic laws that have been put in place over the last 16 years it wasn't just the great council of chiefs that was abolished it was also the municipal councils Mm. The one election is to on a common role. Uh, it was also elections to the Sugarcane Growers Council. There were also attempts to uh, harass the trades unions that were kind of b- rolled back a bit only because of pressure from the ILO, the International Labour Organization. So all of these representative organizations are going to need to be brought back. And I know there are steps underway to bring back municipal elections as well. Mm, very, very interesting, and yes, I guess a lot, a lot of changes afoot um, in Fiji politics with um, Rambuka's government, but also, I guess, some some things as usual as as we can see with some of these election laws that were also used by the ruling Fiji First. Very interesting, uh, John, and always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for your time this morning. That was Dr. John Frank- Frankel, a professor in comparative politics at the University of Victoria in New Zealand. Nijam 40. Hosted by me, Sam Wax. And me, Tenero Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today and look forward to the next-gen Nijan Footy Stars. Nijan Footy. Nijan Footy. Monday evenings at 6 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia, and it's that time where we take a look across the region and find out what the stories, are, what stories are trending across uh, people's, you know, phones, their their computer screens, and I guess wherever else people get news. And to do that, to take us through it all, we have Kyle Evans as usual. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, and now let's head to the Northern Mariana Islands, where a tropical storm is threatening to bring high winds and possible flooding there. Can you tell us the latest, Kyle? Yeah, Tropical Storm Mawa, it's called, and it's actually strengthened to typhoon status, and uh, and it could hit Guam as early as tomorrow morning. Uh, warnings are also in place for Tinian and Saipan as well. So this is all according to the National Weather Service. Uh, it said people can expect high winds uh, if and when it makes landfall. Uh, rainfall and flooding is possible as well. And, uh, and the advice as of now is to begin preparing a disaster plan and to keep a, uh, keep a lookout for warnings on local radio, local bulletins, and uh, and to be ready to evacuate uh, if necessary. Uh, at this stage, it's still too early to provide 
exact wind and surge forecast, um, but there is a possibility of extensive it's extensive damage somewhere in the region, and both a direct hit or a miss is still possible at this stage. Yes, and and typhoons, of course, um, as you call this this storm that's developing. I understand that it's just the geography that caught makes it different. You know, mm. we, we we have cyclones in in most of the South Pacific, um, and I believe if they form sort of more more northern northern Pacific, and of course in in Southeast Asia as well, it's called typhoons. But obviously, it can be just as destructive, um, just as uh, as scary for people who are going through it, and and the, the, that's why I guess that advice is is in place um, to ensure that people are ready and prepared. And and um, yeah, well, hopefully there there is an, a miss, but um, better to be safe than sorry. I mean, what is the reaction on the ground, Kyle? Are people preparing? Yeah, so I had a bit of a flick through the Guam Daily News uh, this morning. Uh, they say public schools and all uh, non-essential government offices have been closed, and an emergency sh- emergency shelter. Shelters will be open by 5 p.m. today. Um, residents have been told to expect uh, showers, thunderstorms, and gustier winds from tonight. So, ironically, though, it was actually beautiful weather over the weekend. So oh, really? Probably, Calm before the storm. Yeah, that's all right. So, yeah, batten down the hatches. Yes, yes. Um, well, our, our prayers and best wishes to to the people in the Northern Pacific and um, the Northern Marianas in particular um, as they battle that storm. Um, now to Australia's Minister for the Pacific, Pat Conroy. He's also on the list, as we um, discussed earlier in the show, the very long list of leaders travelling to Papua New Guinea this week. What's on his agenda, though, Kyle? Yeah, so he'll be representing Australia at the United States Pacific Island Dialogue, uh, obviously hosted by uh, James Marape and the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. Uh, so that's according to a statement uh, released by his office yesterday. It's actually going to be his fourth visit to PNG uh, as Minister. Mm. And uh, he'll be re-emphasising Australia's commitment to the prosperity and stability of the region. Uh, he'll meet with aged care workers uh, about to leave for Australia under the Labor Mobility Scheme. And he'll also announce $6 million, uh, into a reef cloud project to help uh, improve the monitoring and management of, uh, of coral reefs uh, in the Pacific Island communities. Oh, very interesting. Um, and yeah, interesting to say you said fourth visit. I mean, it's only been, I guess, a bit over a year that they've been um, empowered this uh, the Albanese government, a bit over a year that Pat Conroy has been um, Pacific Minister. So interesting to see all those visits happening. Um, now let's head to some soccer news, Kyle. Ni Vanuatu's soccer player Brian Kaltak will be pay- playing in the Australian A-League Grand Grand Final. He must be the first, right? Well, yeah. I mean, he was the first ever Ni Vanuatu player to play in the competition alone. Oh, and, there you uh, go. So now he's definitely going to be the first to play in an A-League Grand Final. Uh, and it happened after his club, the Central Coast Mariners, prevailed 2-0 over Adelaide United uh, on the Central Coast over the weekend. Um, Kaltak's been pivotal as well. I know he was one of the best players in the first game of that series. He almost kicked a goal, actually, in the early wow. part of the second game. Uh, now they'll play out Melbourne City in the decider in Sydney in two weeks' time. Uh, well, yeah, they'll, they'll hope to cap off a fairy tale season. It wasn't too long ago the Mariners were wooden spooners and a bit of a laughingstock of that competition. But um, no, things have definitely changed. Well, yes. W- Must have been around the time Caltech showed up. I know, up. yeah. I was going to say, I mean, um, um, yeah, it could be a coincidence, but I'm just saying, you know, if they turn things around when Caltech st- started, then, uh, you know, maybe there's something to do with a, a bit of Vanuatu spirit in the team. Um, it would be great to see if he can score a goal in, in the grand final, right, Carl? Yeah, well, he's a 
defender, but, uh, but oh, yeah, look, opportunities okay. do come. I'm not, I'm not the greatest soccer expert either, I've got to say, but um, but yeah, no, look, it, just just him being there is amazing. He's really obviously uh, you know lit that path for other Pacific Islanders to one day perhaps do the same. Yes, indeed. Um, now let's head to rugby. How did the Pacific teams go this weekend? Yeah, so. Pretty good news in the in the World Sevens for Fiji anyway. Uh, in London, uh, the World Seven series uh, wrapped up and and very much ended on a high for Fiji. They claimed silver after losing to uh, Argentina thirty five to fourteen in the final. Uh, Samoa, meanwhile, had a really strong finish as well. They actually finished third. They beat Fiji um, in that uh, in that bronze in that bronze playoff to claim that. Wow. But they've missed on missed out on Olympic qualification by by a single point. Unfortunately, um, Australia's claim that fifth and final spot, but still, yeah, great effort by uh, Samoa to finish um, that tournament so strongly. Uh, In the Super Rugby, it was another tough week for Pacific teams. Uh, the Fiji and Drua lost 32-18 to to the Waratahs. Uh, Moana Pacifica, meanwhile, went down 41-7 to the Crusaders. Uh, and in the Rugby League, the Queensland Cup, the PNG Hunters fell 28-24 to to the winner Manly sea, uh, Seagulls. It was a better effort than the week before, uh, where they, they got hammered by the, uh, the Townsville Blackhawks. Um, very close game this time round, though. Five tries apiece. Roderick Ty, who we had on the show recently, scored two of them in the final 10 minutes. But it looks like kicking let them down again. They only converted two of those five tries and, oh dear. and uh, went on to lose by four points. Oh, dear. Well, um, yes. Well, let's see what happens. Uh, and we've got a whole week and weekend of sport. And we've obviously got the special sports show on Friday here on Pacific Beach um, with the Richard Hewitt. Um, I'm sure there'll be more sporting news then. Until then... Kyle, thank you for your for those stories today. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. ABC Radio Australia brings you great sporting rivalry with State of Origin. Picked up beautifully off the bounce by Combo. Put to the stat kick. Wow, what a try! This year promises to be a cracking series. Flicks up to this go. Big, big, big. The human pinball. State of Origin on ABC Radio Australia, your home of rugby league in the Pacific. Loving rugby league in 2023. You're listening to Pacific Beat. Timor Leste had its uh, parliamentary election yesterday, the fifth one since the country regained independence in 2002. Votes are still being tallied, but the outcome could have a major implication for Australia. Marianne Farr reports from Dili. After weeks of campaigning, voters in Timor-Leste finally had their say. We need to choose the right leader who will handle this country and he can, you know, look after the people. Hopefully the the government want to work together and looking for the old people. In East Timor. But while results are being tallied, some of the favourites to become the next Prime Minister are planning their next move. Independence hero Marie Alcatiri saying he'll push to renegotiate an oil and gas treaty with Australia. What is recognised as our right? Yes, I will push for it. The deal was struck by his main opponent, Shanana Guzmao, in 2018, ending a decade-long dispute over rights to oil and gas in the Timor Sea. 
It followed allegations Australia spied on its young neighbour to gain an advantage in the original negotiations. The new deal entitles Timor-Leste to between 70 and 80% of royalties from the greater sunrise fields, depending on where the oil and gas is processed. Dr Al-Khatiri says it's still unfair. This so-called uh, maritime boundary with Australia, we need to change uh, something better for Timor-Leste. So you're not happy with the maritime boundary? Yeah, I'm not happy. What would you be pushing for? Why 30% for Australia if you, the pipeline come to Timor-Leste? Why? If it is 100% in, in, in our boundaries. Does it make sense? His party, Fretilin, is unlikely to win an outright majority in this election, but could get into power by forming an alliance with minor parties. Opposing party, CNRT, hasn't signed a coalition deal, with leader Shanana Guzmao hoping to form government alone. We spend one entire month going around the country, and I can say that we will win the majority. He's been running on a platform of economic advancement, vowing to develop the greater sunrise oil and gas fields. President Jose Ramos Horta had previously flagged Chinese interest in the project. Now he says Australia is the clear partner of choice. So we prefer to work with Australia on the development of greater sunrise. We share the greater sunrise. We share the Timur Sea. Make no sense for us to look elsewhere. The project is seen as crucial with existing petroleum revenue in Timor-Leste expected to run out in the next decade. The country is also seeking to join ASEAN in the next couple of years. But for President Ramasota, there's another priority. Extreme poverty has to be dramatically reduced. It is abominable that in a country like ours, we have so much malnutrition. A goal he'll put to whoever forms the new government. That was Marian Farr reporting from the Timorese capital, Dili. A book about Samoa's Tatao or tradition seems to have tapped into something. It's backed by popular demand after its first run more than a decade ago. The book Tatao, a Samoan tattoo, a New Zealand art, global culture, now also contains essays along with detailed photos of the body markings by Mark Adams. Some are written by art historian Peter Brunt. That's the essays, that is, uh, who reflects on the many stories represented in the book. The book is a new edition of a, of a book that was published some time ago in about 2010. But that edition was sold out very quickly and it's been hard to get and lots of people have been wanting it. You could describe it as a coffee table book, but the content is um, pretty serious. The photographs span several decades from the 19. 19- 70s to to the present, really. I mean, one photograph that has always been a favourite of mine is a photograph that Mark took of a young uh, Samoan student at the University of Auckland at the time, who's a New Zealand-born um, Samoan who uh, received his pair um, from Paolo Sulawape. And he was tattooed along with a Pākehā New Zealand um, painter. The photograph is about, um, I mean, it takes place in Fuimoono uh, Norman Tuiasau is the, the, the name of the Songemiti in the photograph, um, newly tattooed Samoan man. And it pictures him um, with his 
family and relatives and a number of friends um, after a ceremony earlier in the day when his um, tata was completed, the last marks were tattooed. But what's interesting about the photograph is not just this kind of family gathering, but with friends, but who these friends are and who these people are. I mean, the photograph includes people like um, um, Donna Awatere, uh, who wrote a famous book in the 1970s called Maori Sovereignty. It includes um, a family member of a woman who started a famous uh, New Zealand feminist uh, broadsheet um, who was at this gathering. You know, Tony Fomerson is in the picture, someone who Paolo photographed, but who was also an activist and advocate of Samoan art, contemporary artists, um, people like Fatu Fe'u and so on. So it really, it really is like a, a portrait of a sort of moment in uh, New Zealand social and political history um, at the same time as it's featuring these two men with uh, their pair. And I think that sense of kind of a sort of historical dimension of Tatao as it unfolds in these decades is something that Mark's work in the book really captures. So I understand that the photos were taken over 45 years. Can you see some sort of historical development? Yes, that's conveyed in the photographs too. I mean, one of the main tattooists, Tofunga Tatatao, is um, Soloape Paolo II. And he was, you know, someone who was willing to innovate and experiment with the art form. And over time, he, you know, began to develop these sort of sleeve motifs that people would um, have tattooed on their upper forearm or their forearms that are sometimes called taulima. That's become a very um, popular um, art form. And you see that development in the book as well. And you also see Paolo's increasing willingness to uh, experiment with the, the overall form of the and also with the, the malu, the um, woman's tattoo, he will incorporate other tatao traditions into his work. And there are you know, several examples of that in the book. He also, you know, quite controversially um, has tattooed um, other non-Samoans. So you see Paolo's work documented from people who were tattooed in places like Amsterdam and Sweden. Behind all of these photographs are those individual stories through who these people are, through particularly through the uh, context in which they are photographed, so their homes. I mean, all of the, almost all of the photographs take place in particular settings, living rooms, studios, um, there's a reverend, uh, someone who, a minister of the church who's photographed um, before the altar of his church. So these settings are very resonant with the cultural context in which Tatao is happening. Migrant homes in cities like Auckland with Samoan mats spread out on the floor and people in football jerseys and... Um, you know, contemporary dress, television in the background, Venetian blinds, etc. So you do get the sense of the 
modernity of the tatao, of the practice, of the tradition. This is very much a living, contemporary, modern tradition. That was Peter Brunt from Victoria University, who's of a Samoan and English descent, talking to Dubrovka Volida about that book. And to remind you what it's called, it's Tatao Samoan Tattoo, New Zealand Art and Global Culture. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat, recapping today's show. Prime Minister Narendra Modi becomes the first Indian leader to visit PNG. We spoke to Aspie analyst Tista Prakash about why it might be happening now and if it's all about China. It is looking to have a global power status, and that means being present in distant shores and really to sort of have a, a, a more sort of global presence, as it were. So there's these two sort of strategic and economic reasons, but also more normal sort of you know global power status and how it's seen and you can catch up on that story and a whole heap more by visiting our website abc pacific until tomorrow the same time have a lovely day <laughs>